Hello, and welcome to the Fiby, your bi-weekly dose of quick-fire board game reviews. On this episode, Ruth explores and settles a newly discovered archipelago in Blue Lagoon, Sarah builds a railroad empire using dragons and crayons and Iron Dragon, I gather a lot of cocoa to help build pyramids in Teotihuacan, and Christy builds up her Wild West boomtown in Circle of Wagons. But first, Luke gathers beautiful mahjong tiles to build his castle in Dragon Castle. I'm a component nut. Garbage components can actually hinder my desire to pull a game off the shelf. I've discovered recently that this proclivity is amplified with abstract games. I could never get acclaimed abstracts like The Duke or Yinch off the shelf because they are so bland, and I ended up selling them both unplayed. Great components, on the other hand, will bring a game back to the table over and over. They're not everything, obviously. A game still needs a great design to be worth playing. Azul, Onitama, Santorini, Sagrada... All of these are examples of well-designed abstracts made all the more appealing by their phenomenal components. And Dragon Castle is no different. Dragon Castle's design team backs up its stellar components with a solid pedigree. Luca Ricci's only recognizable credit is Dragon Castle, but he's joined by Lorenzo Silva and Hjalmar Hawk, the design team behind the wildly popular roll-and-write Railroad Inc. Hawk also brought us photosynthesis, and Silva is on the design team for Potion Explosion. The core of Dragon Castle's design is Mahjong Solitaire. A set of absolutely beautiful, chunky Mahjong-style tiles are arranged in one of several predetermined patterns on the central game board for players to draft from. There are three ways to draft. Take two identical tiles, Mahjong Solitaire style, take a single tile and a shrine roof, or pick a single tile and discard it entirely, gaining one VP in the process. The point is to form orthogonally adjacent groups of four or more tiles of the same type on your player board. Once an appropriate group is formed, all tiles in the group flip and score points based on the size of the group. Tiles can be placed in any open space, but they can also be placed on top of any face-down tile, and this is how towers are built. When you flip a group of tiles, you also have the option to place a shrine roof on top of one of them, and the taller a tower containing a shrine roof, the more points it scores at the end of the game. Figuring out how to get a group of more than four tiles to flip simultaneously with the right draft is a really intriguing puzzle. Collecting large groups is fairly easy early on, but sometimes it behooves you to build smaller groups early to form the foundations for taller towers. But then getting those big groups gets harder in the mid-game. That timing puzzle is also important, and pulling off a big turn by connecting three groups of tiles with a single pair draft and flipping them all for 10 points, then capping a three-height tower with a shrine is sublime. Some special tile types score differently, or grant bonuses like extra shrine placement when they're flipped. Each game there's also a spirit ability any player can activate by discarding a tile or shrine, and a dragon card that offers an endgame scoring goal. The variety added by these features cannot be understated. I've never played two games that felt alike. Player interaction in Dragon Castle comes mostly in the form of hate drafting. Much like in Azul, there will absolutely be times when you take a tile that's not great for you because it would complete a high-scoring group for an opponent. In the late game, it gets even more punchy, with players simply discarding tiles and taking the VP just to prevent an opponent from scoring. I know not everyone enjoys that kind of interaction, but I find it invigorating. And again, much like Azul, in my opinion, it's typically better in Dragon Castle to draft for your own benefit than away from an opponent, but there are definitely times where the point swing is just too great to ignore. Turns in Dragon Castle are quick, and the strategy is engaging enough to make for a wildly entertaining 30 to 45 minute experience and it's made all the better by the absolutely beautiful components. I mentioned how awesome the tiles are already. Awesome enough that I'm actually bummed they don't make a complete Mahjong set I can use outside the game, 
but Sinji Chu's artwork is so stunning and serene that it instantly drew me in the first time I saw it. Heiko Gunther and Noah Vasali's graphic design is the perfect balance of beautiful, functional, and thematic, and all this adds up to one of the most stunning games on the market. My biggest and maybe only gripe about the components is that they used cardstock instead of chipboard for all the boards, which, in my opinion, is an inexcusable incongruity for a game so otherwise gorgeous. My copy has a neoprene central mat that I find a massive upgrade, but I'm on the hunt for the neoprene player mats that Horrible Games released as an Essen promo. But even just mounting the original boards to chipboard would have been enough to make me not take notice of how flimsy and out of place they are. But that's an insignificant complaint in the face of an otherwise fantastic abstract that stands tall with the likes of Azul and Sagrada. I'm so happy Horrible Games published it, and I'm even more thankful that Simon picked it up for US distribution. I hope it continues to get recognition so that maybe they'll release a quote-unquote expansion that'll fill out the rest of the tiles for a Mahjong set. I don't know how that would work, but let's make it happen. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about Blue Lagoon, Reiner Knizia's 2018 release from Blue Orange Games. Now the good Dr. Knizia's games do tend to be a bit hit or miss for me, but this 2-4 player area control and set collection game hits the delicious combination of super simple roles and deep emergent gameplay that has me coming back for more, especially as the game is just so damn quick to play. In Blue Lagoon, players spread out across a Polynesian archipelago, building huts and settlements as they gather valuable resources. The game is played over two almost identical phases, with the only difference being how players start building across the map. In the first phase, players can place seafaring settlers on any water space to start a new chain, while in the second phase, pieces can only be played adjacent to existing pieces of the same color. But as all huts that were placed in the first phase remain on the board to start the second, then this means that each player's choices in the second are entirely the result of the opportunities they set up for themselves. Players only get to place a single piece per turn, so careful placements to get to resources first or to avoid telegraphing where you're going can lead to some tricky decisions as you wish for some way to be able to place an extra piece. It can be especially frustrating because each phase ends when either all player pieces are placed or more abruptly at the very moment the last resource is claimed from the board, usually accompanied by the groans of all the players planning on getting at least one more placement. But it's frustrating in the sense of adding tension and making players play the odds, not in the sense of making the game less enjoyable. Each phase is followed by scoring, during which players earn points in a variety of ways, which can be split into two broad categories. Points from controlling or having presence across the islands, and points for the resources you've collected. After the first phase, the board is reset with only the huts remaining, while after the second phase is scored, the player with the most points is declared winner. Simple enough. And the rules of Blue Lagoon are incredibly simple. After all, a turn simply involves placing a piece of your color on the board. But the gameplay that results is incredibly deep. As players' settlements spread across the board, it quickly becomes apparent that each single placement affects a lot of things, from scoring opportunities to potential future placement, and of course, the always-present possibility of cutting someone off from what they need. And don't let the bright, cheerful colors fool you. It's a very cutthroat game, especially at four players. I take a probably concerning amount of pleasure in placing next to a resource that another player is beside at the same time as someone else is threatening a different one, making the player decide which they're going to give up. 
But Blue Lagoon still doesn't feel as mean as that might sound, as everyone is blocking everyone constantly, so no one should be the only target. And with a ton of ways to earn points, no player is going to be allowed to do everything. And if you do play with a group that only targets one person while letting everyone else run unchecked, well then you might wish to consider a different game. And honestly, a different group. Blue Lagoon is a beautiful game. The cheerful board features lush green islands with their point values clearly marked around the sides, even down to the arrow running from the edge to a central island. And the board comes alive as it's populated by the settler tokens with their vivid borders. Tomas Lorek's art adorns the game, and there's multiple unique pieces of art used for the settlers. Each player color has its own unique art, including not just sea and land-based settlers, but with both genders represented for each. Added to this production are custom wooden pieces for huts and resources, and even a silk screen bag included purely for randomizing the placement of the ladder. It all makes for a beautiful game on the table that's guaranteed to have passers-by at least stop and take a look. While heavy epic games always appeal to me, I also love games that can be taught quickly, letting players get into the game within minutes, and Blue Lagoon is a great option here. I will warn that someone's first game is probably not going to be amazing if they're playing against experienced players, as there's just too many ways to score to keep track of, and usually people focus on the one thing they remember from the teach. But you can even see people be significantly more competitive during the second phase of their first game as everything clicks. And with a full game being so fast, taking just 30 to 45 minutes, Blue Lagoon's a game you can get back to the table quicker, giving people a chance to dig into the possibilities they missed the first time. It's a great, accessible abstract that I highly recommend checking out, even if you don't normally play abstract games. Let me know what you think, and when I'm not exploring new islands, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an S. Thanks for listening. Do you like trains and crayons and very long board games and elves? Then Iron Dragon is the game for you. Iron Dragon is part of the Empire Builder family, a venerable series of games called Crayon Rail Games because all of them are about drawing railroad tracks on a special board with crayons. Like all Crayon Rail Games, Iron Dragon is long. The fastest game I've ever played was three and a half hours, and with new players, a game can easily last over five. But while other Crayon Rail Games are set in real places, Iron Dragon has a fantasy setting with Lord of the Rings-style city names, magical goods to deliver, and magical features on the map, like an underground city that costs more to build and travel in. Iron Dragon was designed by Darwin Bromley and Tom Wham, and was originally published way back in 1994. Mayfair Games put out a new edition in 2017, with new art by Javier Gonzalez-Cava and a few minor rules changes, but the core mechanisms are still exactly the same. The rules of Iron Dragon are simple. The board is a map with a grid showing different types of terrain. You start with a basic engine, some seed money, and three demand cards, which are cities requesting goods from other cities. You pay to draw rails with your crayon and move your train along the rails. Get paid for deliveries, use the money to draw more rails, and keep traveling. The first player to connect to seven of the eight major cities and have 250 bucks is the winner. Well, it's called wizard gold, but I always say bucks. One thing I love about Iron Dragon is its single-minded focus. So many new games are all point salad and sandbox and multiple paths to victory, and that's great. I love games like that. But I also really love that Iron Dragon's core mechanism is so simple. Basically, all you do for the entire game is draw rails, travel on rails, pick up goods and deliver them. That's it. The game has a clarity of purpose that I enjoy so much. You might be thinking that a four-hour game with basically two mechanisms sounds kind of boring. And to be honest, when I was first invited to play Iron Dragon, I wasn't sure I'd like it. 
I gave it a try because it was a friend whose taste I generally trust, and boy howdy did it click for me. A game of Iron Dragon is a slow burn that provides such a feeling of accomplishment. When the game begins, you're creeping along with barely enough money to make your first delivery. But you keep going, each new delivery lets you build more rail and go a little farther, you upgrade your engine to go faster, and before you know it, your rail empire stretches all over the map and you're flying around the board and it just feels so satisfying. Now there's good frustration in board games and bad frustration in board games, and Iron Dragon has both. Good frustration is, oh no, why did I just do that? Like the time I lined up a perfect set of deliveries with a great payoff, figured out the most efficient way to do it, then in the middle of the run realized I'd forgotten to pick up one of the goods when I passed through a city and had to turn around, wasting several turns. Or the time I was on the verge of winning a game and someone drew the taxes event card and we all had to pay a penalty. And then when I made my next delivery just a few turns later, this should have been the win. I came up two bucks short. Two bucks. But Iron Dragon has bad frustration too. Like event cards that can make you lose a turn. Yes, lose a turn. That's not something you see often in board games these days. But in 1994, it was not uncommon. So was a game ending instantly when someone wins, which is what happens in Iron Dragon. At least, that's how it used to end. This is, I think, one of the biggest changes in the new edition. Now when someone meets the win condition, the round is completed so everyone gets the same number of turns. To be honest, I do have some reservations about Iron Dragon. Not just event cards, which could cause you to lose a turn, have to drop a good you're carrying, or erase your rail either in the desert or over rivers. For fans of engine-building Euro games, these can be very frustrating, and definitely the bad kind of frustrating. Iron Dragon can also be outright unforgiving. If you don't plan carefully, an event that erases your rail can literally wipe you out of the game, putting you so far behind you have no chance to catch up. And this can happen with hours left in the game. I mean, I've seen that happen. There's a whole lot of downtime in Iron Dragon, with basically no mechanism to keep players engaged on other people's turns. The game is almost aggressively anti-accessibility. It can be difficult to find cities on the map. Some of the crayon colors are too similar. The tokens for goods have no writing, just tiny little symbols. And there's enough luck involved in drawing a good combination of demand cards that Runaway Leader can be a problem. In theory, event cards with their negative effects should help slow down a Runaway Leader, but they're so random that they could just as easily harm the struggling players and put the leader even farther ahead. But even with all those caveats, I love Iron Dragon, and I jump at the chance to play it. But the real question is, should you buy Iron Dragon? Yes, if you love Pick Up and Deliver. If you like playing with crayons. If you like long games that focus on one mechanism. If you're forgiving of older game conventions like Lose a Turn. And most importantly, if you have two or three friends who feel the same. Because at four plus hours, no one will play this game with you out of obligation. Although, I say that, but I recently found out that my friend who owns Iron Dragon and taught it to me, her husband doesn't like Iron Dragon. Never has. But when we play, he always plays too and he rarely complains. All I can say is, that's love. And that's Iron Dragon. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not delivering ale to the Elf City, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. What was the most complicated game that came out in 2018? I actually don't know the answer to that question. But I can tell you which game was most complicated to say for a lot of people, so much so that there were video tutorials on its pronunciation. I grew up in LA and was surrounded by all types of languages, so seeing and saying a word like Teotihuacan comes pretty natural to me. But in case you needed a tutorial, the word is luckily spelled exactly how it sounds, which isn't always the case with Aztec words. 
Teotihuacan City of Gods was published in 2018 by NSKN Games. It's designed by Danielle Tassini, who has also published The Voyages of Marco Polo, Council of Four, and one of my absolute all-time favorites, Zolkin. In Teotihuacan, which plays in about 90 to 120 minutes, players play as powerful noble families trying to achieve everlasting glory while planning the construction of the pyramid. In its essence, the game is a giant rondelle with, when completed, a gorgeous pyramid sitting in the middle. The board is incredibly busy, which is a detriment to the game. People see that beautiful pyramid, and then slowly back away when there's a million things they seemingly have to decipher on the board. I'm here to tell you to come on back. There are eight action boards on the entire board. Instead of worker meeples, players use dice to represent their workers, and the pips on the dice indicate which power level that worker is at. On a player's turn, they can take a normal turn by advancing one of their dice, one, two, or three action spaces in a clockwise direction. After moving that worker, that player must perform one of three possible actions on an action board they've landed on. They can either collect cocoa, worship, or perform a main action. Cocoa is needed to enter an action space where there are other dice present, and if you want to take a main action. To collect cocoa, you just count the number of different colored workers already present on the action space, and you receive that number of cocoa plus one. If you decide to take a main action on an action board, you must pay Coco equal to the number of different colored dice on the action location already there. Each action board has a different main action. Three of the action boards are locations where you receive resources to build house and or pyramids. These resources are wood, gold, and stone. When you land on an action board, how strong your worker dice is determines how much you're receiving. Also, when you land on a location that already has your dice, you'll also receive more resources because your workers are more powerful there. Another action board allows you to pay gold in order to receive a technology or benefit for the entire game. If you have two dice there, or you enter the location with a four or five level dice, you can pay gold for higher level technologies. Many of these technologies will trigger when you activate a certain action board. Another action board allows you to use wood to build buildings. The earlier you build these, the more victory points you'll score. But the houses are relocated from building row on the main board, which comes into play during the scoring round. The last two action boards deal with a pyramid, either selecting decoration tiles that sit on the steps of the pyramid, or building the pyramid itself with resources you've collected. The pyramid tiles are sturdy, square, mahjong-type tiles and are just delightful to play with. Taking either one of these actions moves you along the pyramid track. Now instead of performing a main action, you can always worship. When you worship, you enter an action board's worship space and claim a discovery tile, which are benefits or mass for end-of-round set collection victory points or you can go up the temple track. If you want to do both things, you'll have to pay Coco. There are three temple tracks in the game, from which you can receive more benefits or mass as you advance on them. When your worker worships, that dice is locked until you pay to free them on a future action, or until someone pays Coco to bump you off if they want to worship as well. Also, during your turn, you can unlock all your dice for free, but that's all you do on your turn. After performing a main action, at least one die will level up. This is how you get more powerful workers that move around the board. Once you hit level 6, you ascend. You then advance your marker one step on the Avenue of the Dead, and you select a reward on the Ascension Wheel, which includes unlocking a level 3 dice for the board. Your die that ascended then starts at level 1 again and at the Palace Action Board. When a player ascends, they advance the white disc on the calendar track. The calendar track controls the pacing of the game. A normal round consists of everyone taking their turn, then advancing the white disc. When the white disc reaches the black disc, an eclipse is triggered. Players get VPs for their step on the Avenue of the Dead, which is multiplied by the lowest visible number on the building row on the main board, and for their step on the pyramid track, which is multiplied by 4, 3, or 2 points depending on if it's the first, second, or third eclipse. 
The player farthest along the pyramid track also gets 4 points, and the pyramid track is reset for the next phase. Players also get points for collecting sets of masks, and each player must pay 1 cocoa for each of their worker that's a level 1 to 3, and 2 cocoa for the level 4 and 5 workers. The game continues for 3 eclipses, with fewer rounds for each eclipse to trigger end of round scoring, and the person with the most victory points wins the game. Some have said that Teotihuacan is a reskin of Zulkin. The time mechanism and sheer genius of Zulkin is unmatched, even by Teotihuacan. I feel like Teotihuacan is more forgiving, whereas Zulkin is just straight up mean, which I love. You can always enter a space in Teotihuacan. What you receive or action you can take is determined by whether you have enough cocoa. But Teotihuacan is still a solid game, and worthy of its predecessor. The beauty of this game is managing your workers around the Rontel, as well as the timing of when to level them up, I enjoy the variability of each play. The game comes with a lot of components, from the cool pyramid tiles to a bunch of sturdy cardboard tiles. I just wish the board wasn't so busy with unnecessary artwork. And that's Teotihuacan. This is Meeple Lady for the Flyby. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Whenever I travel or attend a gaming convention, I try to carry around as little as possible. I'm always on the lookout for portable games that are light on both weight and space. Card games are an obvious solution, and anything in the 18-card micro-game category is especially great. My current favorite is Circle the Wagons, published in 2017 by Buttonshy Games, designed by Stephen Aramini, Danny Devine, and Paul Kluka, and with art by Brian Fisher and Beth Sobel. Circle the Wagons is a two-player wallet game in which you build your own boomtown. Each of the cards in the game is divided into four terrain types, such as desert and forest, and each terrain area has something on it, such as a cow or a gun. You can place these cards adjacent to each other to create your boomtown. You can also partially overlap cards in order to cover up portions of cards that you don't want showing, or to create a better town. Both the components and placement rules of Circle the Wagons are reminiscent of Sprawlopolis, a more recent button-shy game with the same designers. Sprawlopolis was reviewed by Laura in episode 57. Scoring in Circle the Wagons happens at the end of the game. You can score points in two different ways. First, you will score your largest contiguous area of each terrain type. So for example, if you have four desert segments connected, you'll get four points for that. There are six terrain types, so this is an important way of scoring points. Second, you'll score each of the goals you have for that game. The cards are double-sided, and on the back of each card is a scoring objective. These typically involve the items on your cards with some kind of spatial element. For example, you score points for the cows in your largest cow group, or for adjacent wagons in straight lines. You draw three objectives each game and use the rest of the cards in your towns so this offers some replayability with different combinations of scoring objectives. Okay, so how do you add to your boomtown? Players choose from a circle of cards, beginning at a particular point and moving clockwise. On your turn, you can take any card you want, but any cards you skip over go to your opponent. You can sometimes use this to stick them with some items you think they don't want, according to the objectives but patches of terrain will always add to your opponent's score as long as they can connect them with like types. They might also be able to cover up a bad icon on a later turn, or place a card in an advantageous way that you didn't expect. All of the cards in the circle are placed face-up, so depending on how strategically you want to play, you can also consider future turns and what your opponent is likely to take next. 
The ability to skip cards has not been a huge factor in the games I've played. I usually end up taking the first or second card available in order to avoid giving cards to my opponent. Maybe I'm missing out on some next level strategy in doing so, but even if you go with the simplest choice of cards 90% of the time, adding the card to your boomtown is an engaging spatial challenge. Terrain areas and game objectives might compete with each other. For example, the cool water objective rewards you for having wagons on or adjacent to water, but you might want to put your card somewhere else to create a large plains area. Other objectives require particular card or item formations. There are also competitive and comparative objectives. For example, one too many says that the player with the most beer loses one point for each beer their opponent has. Because there are multiple factors to consider, it can be really satisfying when you find a great placement for a card in your town. Circle the Wagons has a solo mode called The Lone Cowboy, which is a small pack of a few extra cards that fits in the wallet. The Lone Cowboy includes six different scenarios in which you play against a dummy player for two rounds. The solo scenarios combine two specific objectives from the regular game with descriptions of your opponent's behavior. In other words, which cards they would skip and how many. Unfortunately, the dummy player doesn't apply the same criteria every time, but it only changes between round 1 and 2. The dummy player is attempting to match a combined icon and terrain type with a face-up card, so playing their turn consists of looking for these matches. There are also some general and scenario-specific details about modified scoring for your opponent, since there is no card placement for the dummy player. In my opinion, the solo rules could be worded more clearly, and Circle the Wagons works considerably better with two players, but the Lone Cowboy is there for you in a pinch, and that's especially nice with portable games. I appreciate Circle the Wagons because it's easy to learn, plays in about 15 minutes, and fits in my back pocket. Let's be honest, you can't fit a wallet in the front pocket of women's pants. The main downside of this game is the table space that it needs. Despite how portable it is, you can't play this in a hospital or on a plane. But as long as you have a regular table, you're in for a good time. I'm Christy, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6Cmarie. You've been listening to The 5 by the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.